my parents were at a dinner. They quietly asked how to go. And I said, I'm going to the Olympics. I got home from Seoul. You know, there's a bunch of newspaper clippings in the front page of the sports section was us bent over our oars in an article that that completely laid blame. And I think what hit home was, wow, you know, we didn't just lose for each other and for ourselves. We lost for the nation. Michael Phelps is the poster child of that, right? If 18 Olympic gold medals does, doesn't fill the hole, then, then are you telling me 19 would have? I think if dogs could come to, come to the conversation, they wouldn't describe it as unconditional love. They would just describe it as love because that's the only love they know. I think at the end of the day, he showed me that I was worthy of, of love. You know, it took a freaking dog for me to figure that out. If we could learn from, from our dogs, I mean, there's a lot about what dogs represent in terms of their presence. If leadership is about relationships and about being and about presence and about love and compassion, all of that is on display in the book. Optimize performance through adapting your physical, psychological, and emotional state. Hey, it's Andrew, and welcome to another edition of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. Jason Dorland is an Olympian, father, partner, coach, entrepreneur, and storyteller who dedicates his life to pursuing excellence in himself and those he supports. Jason represented Canada in the Men's Eight event at the 1988 Summer Olympics in Seoul. He's also studied advertising design at Syracuse University in Syracuse, New York. Jason is the author of three books, Chariots and Horses, Life Lessons from an Olympic Rower, Pulling Together, A Coach's Journey to Uncover the Mindset of True Potential, and one of my favorite books I've read this year, Ike, The Dog Who Saved a Human. When Jason is not running or swimming with his dogs Oakley and Bella on the trails near his beautiful home on Vancouver Island, he shares experiences and life lessons through coaching, keynotes and workshops with his wife, business partner and fellow Olympian, Robin Ma. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Andrew. And I'll and I'll give you full marks for saying Robin's last name properly. So, uh, wow, normally it gets butchered into meager and mahar and all these sorts of things, but uh, it's a Gaelic name and you did it perfectly. So thank you. Well, we're off to a good start. Yes, right. <laughs> Jason, a rough frame for today. Four parts. Part one, your background, growing up as a child in Canada, going to the Olympics and transitioning from sport really want to dig into as well what you did, the mistakes you made, and how you now teach other people on that transition. Part two, Ike the dog. I loved reading the story. I thought initially, really? A story about a dog written from a dog's point of view? Fascinating, mate. It, it blew me away. I love the story. And I want people to know about that. Part three, the healing power of pets. We've looked at the science on this. Now, I didn't know. I didn't need to look at the science to tell you. I've had dogs ever since we grew up. I had a bird. I had a galah named Apples. I had a chook named Dodo that I used to hypnotize. I've grown up with animals. Mum and dad are both off the farm. Fascinating, though, looking at the research, there are a multitude of benefits around having pets in your life. In part four, we call Performance Uncovered. We're going to find out more about you, what makes you tick, and we're going to peel back the layers. So let's start. Go back to when you were a young fella. What was life like growing up in Canada? Well, it was, you know, I've, I've been teased many times that I, I sort of had Aussie and Harriet for mum and dad. I didn't realize that I'd won the jackpot with my parents until I sort of got older and and had some friends. And, you know, I had a pretty dream childhood. 
Uh, my dad was a lifer at Ridley College in St. Catharines, Ontario, which is, you know, an independent school. He was a housemaster. We lived on campus. I grew up on the campus. I went to the school. And my my problems were, you know, not being able to get into the pool one day during the summer or the tennis courts were full or, you know, it, it was a pretty, pretty nice childhood. Big problems, big problems. Huh? Yeah. And, um, you know, after the war, dad had gone to McGill University here in Canada and he was quite an athlete. And although an academic as well and teacher, you know, he got four jocks for kids and we were all involved in sport and rowing, especially my granddad rode, my dad rode, all my brother's sister rode. And then I was the babe. And when my turn came, I I fell into it, loved it, and and sort of off we went. So sport was was a huge part of my life. Yeah, I consider myself very fortunate for my childhood. We're doing this via a Zoom link. You're a, a big lad. Can you give me height? What are you? Uh, six four and a bit, two hundred pounds. Yeah. yeah. So I think at the time in '88, it was a decent size. I think you go to the World Championships now, <laughs> I look like a coxie. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was, uh, I had a pretty good frame and so it just kind of worked. So you, you obviously took to rowing well because you qualified in the eight for Seoul. And, and before we talk about Seoul and what happened in that event, can you tell me about the lead up? So as an athlete, I was good, not great. Won multiple state championships, but never quite went to that next level. So my dream, my aspiration like you, was to go to the Olympics. When you found out you were going to the Olympics, just tell us about the euphoria, the joy. You know, interestingly enough, I didn't feel euphoria or joy in the moment of finding out. When I, fe when I felt my most excitement, and there'll be some men on, in the audience, I think, who will relate to this, especially of my generation or our generation. I think um, my parents were at a dinner, and and so I, so I drove over to pick them up after the dinner, and... They're walking out and they're coming towards me in the car and and they knew that you know the final selection was happening that afternoon. They hadn't heard and so you know they quietly ask how to go, and I said I'm going to the Olympics and oh I'm going to get choked up. <clears throat> and um, my dad, you know, very traditional guy, war wartime guy. I could count the number of times on my hand when. He was excited about my achievements as a young athlete, right? Very reserved. Humility was a big ticket item for this guy. And I'd never seen him so excited. And that was it. That was my that was my permission to be excited. So it was pretty cool. That was that was sort of holy crap. I have I have I have achieved one of the things a lot of young boys want to achieve, which is impressing their father. And in that moment, I had impressed my dad. It was good. It is beautiful seeing your visceral response. You're having a glass of water now. Your eyes are a little bit glazy. You still feel that, don't you? Oh God, yeah. Oh, oh it's it's so alive in me, and um, I can just feel my chest tightening. I mean, Dad's been gone a number of years now, but uh, as a young boy, I mean, that stuff gets hardwired, right? Our young experiences, and uh, yeah, as a young athlete, wanting to. Garner, his approval was a, a big pastime of mine. Hey, it's me. Just a quick note, I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know you probably hear this on so many other podcasts and like me, you switch off. 
but can I ask you to please go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. That's it. Now let's get on to this week's guest. And reading about you in preparation for this interview, Jason, as well, when you set your heart on a goal like going to the Olympics, so much mm. of your role identity is it's inextricably linked with that self-identity. So you, you, you were and you are an Olympian. You will always be an Olympian. No one will ever take that away from you. I say this to a lot of the young male and female athletes I work with. I want every athlete I work with, Jace, in fact, every high performer in performing arts, entertainment, whatever field that I'm working in, have your main job, but I want them doing something outside as well. So it's just not, I'm the athlete, I'm the singer, I'm the artist, I'm the, the reporter, because invariably that will change or that can get taken away from you. And it's having that stable base around you so you're not just the rower. So seeing how much emotion that brought to you, and then we fast forward to Seoul. You're in the Olympics. You, you say yourself in a TED Talk, which I loved, watching called The Thrill is in the Chase, and you talk about the arrogance of my 24-year-old self being obsessed with winning. You earn a spot on the team. Four months later, you and your team cross the line in last position, or I think in rowing they call it DFL, dead right. fucking last for anyone who doesn't yes. understand rowing terms. Right, right. Next day, across all broadsheets in Canada, Canadians bomb out in Seoul. Do you want to pick that up for me? Yeah, that was a moment. Um, and, you know, I can still feel that because um, I wouldn't have known it at the time, but in reflection, I would have considered that my first panic attack. And I had got home from Seoul. My clock was a mess. My parents didn't know what to say, so they didn't say anything. And it was late. Before they went to bed, my dad said, you know, there's a bunch of newspaper clippings on the on the living room couch. If you want to have a look, we're going we're going to go back to bed. And and so I went in there by myself and I was flipping through the papers. And, and then I came across to the front page of the Globe and Mail, our national newspaper. And the front page of the sports section was us bent over our oars with that headline and an article that that completely laid blame. And, you know, 24, 25 and a very young 24, 25 it was the first time my name had ever been in the paper, let alone being accused of of screwing up on such a large level. And part of it was because the Canadians had won Los Angeles, right? So they had won four years earlier. We were defending Olympic champions. We had the same coach, same crew members. We were faster and we blew up in the final. And so, yeah, that was... You know, I remember in the in the days after, I remember when I read that, it felt like just this rush of adrenaline coming up my body. And and I think what hit home in the weeks that followed was, wow, you know, we didn't just lose for each other and for ourselves. We we lost for the nation. And I remember it getting so bad that when I would go out to get groceries or or what have you, run errands, I had it in my mind that everywhere I went, people were looking at me and pointing fingers. And I was just that paranoid and that messed up. And uh, I really didn't know how to manage it. And so my strategy at the time was to hide. And so I chose Australia, right? And I jumped on a plane and I came down and took a job at Melbourne Grammar and coaching. And, and that was my escape. 
good place to choose. Come to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> we, we got all heavy. I really appreciate you being so open. As a 24 or 25-year-old, we just don't have those mental models. And I'm assuming back then you, you either didn't or you didn't have a lot of contact with sports psychology. You would have had your None. head rowing None. coach, S&C. So it's all about power and speed and you know, big, strapping young men and women, fast, in the, in the boat, you know, dry land training and no work around those mental skills. That's a huge, huge baptism in yeah. failure, in reauthoring who you are. And in interesting, you say that you felt like the whole world was watching you. The reality, two weeks later, they would have been on to NFL or something else. But for you yeah. at that age, that, that carried on for what, years? Years. Yeah, years. I mean, we call it athlete transition now, but everything now in hindsight was textbook. Mm. So anxiety, depression, uh, eating disorder, OCD, workout, weight loss, you know, you name it, uh, loss of identity, started to replace rowing with other things to try and chase validation. You know, there, it was, there were years of bumpy, of, of bumpy going and, um, you know, I'm grateful for it now, but at the time, it was a rough ride, for sure. Other things like going out, partying, being young? No. Just, it just wasn't my thing. And, and part of it being, you know, I remember then after we lost, we were back in the, in the village in sort of, we stayed in these apartments. All, all eight of us and our coach were in that, in that. And, and there was no debrief. We didn't talk about the race. There was nothing. Just the scotch came out and people got hammered. I wasn't a drinker at the time. Yeah, it was just, you know, and and as things got deeper and darker, what made it worse was that I thought I was the first one to ever experience what I was experiencing. And so I was, there's no way on earth I was telling anybody, hey, I'm, is there something wrong with me? Because <laughs> this is really hard. And so I just... Uh, yeah, I just sort of hung on and kept moving forward. But um, but after my year in Seoul, or excuse me, in Australia, I figured the best way to fix it was to go again, right? And so came home and started training for Barcelona. And that photograph from the Globe and Mail lived beside my bed. And every morning, every night, uh, every practice I went out to, I would look at that photograph and I would listen to the Germans celebrating. And I would just say to myself, there's no way in hell this is happening again. And it was, it was like rocket fuel for about six to eight months. And then all of the anger that I was utilizing to come back, the redemption, the revenge just came boiling over. And I'll never forget it. I was heading down to the lake to train. And I was so lost in my thoughts that I almost got hit by a car going across the road. So I get to the boathouse, I'm putting my boat down in the water and the oars. And, and I thought to myself, you know, if I had just been nicked by that car, I could take a few days off. And I just said, Jace, man, that's like, what are you talking about? Don't. And I chased that thought away. You know, a few minutes later, it came back and I just rolled back onto the dock and I laid there for about 15 minutes. And and that was that was it. I got up, put my boat away, put the oars away. And that was the last time I rode. And I just said, I'm done. There is so much I'd like to unpick on that. <laughs> I'll pick one or two of the biggest ones. Yeah. 
chip on the shoulder, we say in psychology, will get you going. Drive keeps you going. So listening to the German anthem, reading that paper and the shame around that was rocket fuel, as you said. Yeah. But it wasn't intrinsic. It was all external. It was everyone else's view on you, how you were perceived, what others would say. So we talk about that internal versus external locus of control. So I'm surprised you even went six months. And then it must have just felt a real blend of, oh, my God, just letting go as well as sadness when you were lying on that dock that you knew that was it, but also just that relief. Yeah, well, you know, I that evening I was in BC on Vancouver Island training and I went back and I phoned my coach who was in Ontario. So it would have been just after dinner. And I just told him, I said, I don't think I can keep doing this. And, and he just said, you've had enough. And I said, I think so, Neil. He said, well, if that's how you feel, then I think it's time for you to let it go. And I hung up and I sat down on my bed and I I cried so hard that I shook. And uh, it was just this release of, of the shame from soul that I had just stuffed away and all of the anger and, uh, oh my goodness, I have never cried like that in my life. And I woke up the next morning thinking, you know, I don't have to train and, you know, whatever, but I wake up the next morning and, (laughs) and I put on my shoes and I went for a 90 minute run because I felt like going for a run. And I just went and got lost in the trails. And it was the most euphoric experience of just being out there lost in the woods and doing it on my terms. And for anyone who has retired in sport, especially when you give a large part of your life to it, when you no longer run, swim, row, tackle, compete, throw, and you look at your diary moving forward, there is so much space and you just, you're just you a little bit overwhelmed because you've had structure. For you, you mm. would have been doing 20 to 30 hours a week, depending on the time of year, plus recovery. So it really is a full-time job. And then when mm. you have that freedom, it can be a little bit like, oh, what do I do? Where do I go yeah. with this? You just had that up and down, up and down. I can only imagine how great you are with young athletes. Do you teach young men and women in Canada now about athlete transition? Not not right now, but I got back into coaching, you know, years later. And, you know, I I certainly can see it now, but getting my teeth kicked in on the world stage was, is what made me a successful coach. And when I say successful, yes, we won a crap ton of races, but we did it without trying to win. We did it by me inviting them to to discover the notion of love when they competed, love for themselves, love for each other, and love for rowing. And and none of that was part of my makeup as a young athlete. And so, yes, we were trying to win national championships and international regattas, but we acknowledged that and we set it aside. And we just said, look, we'll go to every day and, and every day we try to get a little bit better. And then on race day, I just want you to go out and find your best race on the day. But it took what happened in Seoul and then meeting Robin for me to become a different coach than I was an athlete. So very grateful for that. In your TEDx talk, you say, losing an Olympic gold medal is a first world problem. I wasn't just chasing an Olympic gold medal. I was chasing what I thought it might bring me, self-worth. But you also then went on to say it was such a gift. And and I, and I can see that there's some real parallels between both of us. I, I have unfinished business on the track. I think I make a good coach. 
because I don't want any athlete I work with or any performer I work with, Jason, to leave that potential there hanging. And you mentioned the word love. If you went back, a young Jason, 24, 25 years of age, what would you tell yourself leading into Seoul? How would you approach it differently? I would have, first of all, I would have given myself a hug <laughs> and just said that, uh, that you're good enough now without, having, without even racing, you're good enough, like that you have nothing to prove and that the medal that, you're, that you've been so hell-bent on for all these years is not going to bring you what you think it will. And uh, I mean, now, goodness gracious, you know, Michael Phelps is the poster child of that, right? If if 18 Olympic gold medals does, doesn't fill the hole, then, then are you telling me 19 would have, right? And I, I just think w- we understand it now that, but at the time in 1988, it was, you know, everything was about the win and it was such an unhealthy culture. So, but like I said, if I, even if I had had the presence of mind or even if by some bizarre chance somebody had come up to me and shared that message with me, I likely would have told them to get lost because mm-hmm. I would have seen that as, as weak and, and trying to undermine my motivation. Now, you have very good self-awareness. You have very good emotional intelligence. Growing up with your father being such a role model, but being tough and, and our generation for a lot of men, our dads were that post-World War II era, so their dads were in that era. A lot of them went to war and you didn't show your emotion. It was a weakness. Mm. What do you mean you've got feelings or you're you're crying? Bloody harden up, son. So that would have rubbed off on you as well. So you had that as role modeling and then you're put into the boat in this hyper-competitive environment. So there's really no awareness of emotions and feelings. And when you had them, that's why you totally fishtailed. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I agree. I mean, I could count on, as a younger man, two times. I saw my dad uh, get, you know, sort of lazy-eyed, and and I remember being struck, like, oh my, you know, my dad just got choked up, and that was a big moment. I mean, now with Matea, I think she just rolls her eyes. I get choked <laughs> up so easily, and so yeah, just a different time, right? Just a different time. What what chokes you up? What sort of movies? Because my kids just roll their eyes and go, "Oh, dad!" Like if I yeah. watch a good bio, especially a comeback story, I lose it. I uh, one yeah. time cried. I was going through a relationship breakdown, so I was a little bit fragile at that stage. But I cried in the Flintstones movie when Fred got sacked by Mister Slate. Uh, oh. No, sorry, when Barney got sacked by Mister Slate, but it was actually Fred who was doing all the dirty work. That's when I realised I, I I needed to get in touch with my feelings a little bit more because it was being expressed through the Flintstones movie. So what movies do you cry in or what songs get you the most? Well, I think, you know, interestingly enough, you talk about bios, Terry, Terry Fox, who was, uh, who was a Canadian icon legend. He was the first young man to try and run across the country on one leg, raise money for cancer awareness. And um, I was a young teenager when he started that um, marathon of hope, ran a marathon every day on one leg. And so now when I see a Terry Fox commercial, I'm done and uh, it doesn't take much. So yeah, Terry was, I think for a lot of Canadians, because uh, he died during, you know, he had to stop because the cancer had come back. And I remember when he announced to the nation that he was after to pull out. That was the first time I saw my dad cry was uh, we were watching the news and I turned around to say, wow, I can't believe he's, and I look at my dad and there's tears just pouring down his cheeks. So that, you know, that he was a big, big influence on a lot of young men. Yeah. 
What drew emotion for me and really brought feelings out is your book. Ike the Dog Who Saved a Human, and I'll read the back page. It follows the transformative journey of author Jason Dorland. A Canadian national team rower left bitter, ashamed and lost after his crew finished last in their final at the 1988 Olympic Games in Seoul, Korea. Dorland retires from rowing and as a way to cope, adopts a golden retriever puppy named Ike, who was destined to be a guide dog for the blind. Yeah. Yeah. Ike makes me cry. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah, you know, writing that thing was was just nonstop tears and laughter. You know, it, it really the process of writing Ike was was a gift as well because I got back to got, got to go back and relive my time with him. Can I be honest when when we met and you had this book about a dog told us a narrative or a story. I was a little bit skeptical. Do you, do you get that much? And I know I'm going to be totally frank with you because you know, yeah. he's this big six foot four former Canadian <laughs> Olympian. And he's told me he's written this story through the eyes of a dog. And I thought, okay, interesting. Yeah. And, you, you know, it. your response, um, what I find, Andrew, is when I ask people about Ike, uh, I find, you know, it's like anything, a movie or a show or a book, we bring ourselves to the story, right? And so the story is going to interact with us. And and so to hear that it evoked emotion and had the in, in fact, you know, effect that it did, there are a couple of men that I've spoken to post reading Ike and, and they'll say, yeah, a little slow here and there, it was okay. And 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 what I find in those moments is that to me, and, and I don't want to assume that I, you know, I can I know what's going on in everybody, but my guess is that there were parts of the book that were uncomfortable. And so they consider them they consider that part of the book slow. And whereas women, you know, in so many ways, Ike embraces the traditional feminine of our nature right? The, the nurturing, the caring, the loving, the compassion. It's, uh, it, it is sort of what's what we like to consider traditionally, I suppose, innate or intuitive for the feminine in us and, and in women. And so when women give me feedback, rarely uh, one person has said the book has, you know, slowed down in parts, but most women, it really lands for it. And, and I think because it gets into some prickly topics about about love and compassion and yeah, and it's told through the eyes of a pup, which I think for a lot of people packs a punch as well, right? That's the bit that I love when I, I move beyond thinking this guy's a bit crazy telling a story about a dog yeah, through the dog's eyes. But when I got into it, I loved it. I really did. For a number of those men that have come back and said it was a bit slow, I didn't quite get it. There is a word. It's called projection. Mm, yeah, so they're okay. you know, projecting their emotions, their feelings, and, and just maybe uncomfortable or haven't had the opportunity to to peel back that layer. And we right. know this, right? For a lot of people, when you do heal, when you do process, when you do make meaning, there's a bit of sadness, a bit of pain, uh, a bit of negative emotion. And we, we tend to shy away from that if we've bought into the, you know, click your heels and go to Kansas, Dorothy, be happy all the time. What yeah. I've learned as I've ticked over a big birthday earlier this year, Jason, into the 5-0, I want life to be rich 
and full and loads of experiences, but also want to have meaning and connection and love and 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 learn from those lessons. So it's not always about being up. It is actually being comfortable with your emotions and that that beautiful range we need in all parts of our life. I, I want to right. pull out a quote I loved in the book. You said this is the uh, dedication to Ike. Dedicated to the most unselfishly loving soul that I've ever known. Thank you, Ike, for teaching me how to cherish each day and live life to its fullest. How not to get too worked up about the small stuff and, ultimately, how to more fully love others and me. You know, I don't know what else to say. I mean, it's true, right? He, uh, yeah, that's that's... I think at the end of the day, he showed me that I was worthy of of love. And um, it took a dog, <laughs> you know, it took a freaking dog for me to figure that out. And um, and fair enough, if that's what it took. But uh, yeah, it was it was quite a journey with him. And yeah, forever grateful, right? So. How long after Seoul did you get out? Because you just putting the chronology together, you had the Olympics, you came out to Australia at uh, Geelong Grandma, 1990 training again, almost got hit by the car, lying down, you went for the 90-minute trial run and just felt that euphoric bliss in flow, as Mikhail and Mihai would say. How long after that did Ike appear? Yeah, so in 92, uh, well, I moved to Vancouver in 92, back from the island, and then got Ike in 93. And, you know, the other kicking the teeth that year was that of course the 92 Canadian men won and so that was another gut punch right it was like wow if you had hung on you asshole you would have you know you would have got what you wanted and you were too weak to be able to do that and so there was there was a you know there was some tough days and weeks that followed that final and um because a lot of the guys from Seoul were in that crew who had mm. stuck stuck on. That, that was my uh, next obvious question. Out of the eight, how many were in? Right. Two, three, I guess, something like that. So, yeah, that was, uh, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. So, and then Ike showed up and for the first time in my life, I had to care about someone else more than me. And the focus was off me. and. And onto this beautiful ball of fur with, you know, I love puppy breath. Some people don't, but, you know, <laughs> and, and I just was captured in this, what I determined to be, a, you know, a race at the time or a competition at the time. I sort of took Ike and replaced him with, replaced Seoul and, and Barcelona with a little dog, right? He was going to be a guide dog. So I figured, well, Screw it. I'm going to make him the best guide dog ever. And so I trained that little guy like nobody's business and um, and tried not to get emotionally involved initially. But, you know, goodness, good luck with that. Four, six months into it, I was I was we were tight and away we went. Did you choose Ike or did Ike choose you? Yeah, there's, <laughs> you know, and that's in the book for sure. But in you know even though it's sort of people joke about it or or there, it's cliche or whatever there is no question in my mind that that boy came forward and 
and chose me. Even when I think back to the moment of sitting down on the newspaper with all of these pups and, you know, and just getting attacked and, but the one dog, the one puppy who stayed while they all returned to the, to the center, it was Ike. And I can still remember picking him up and, and just sort of deciding, well, this is it then. And, um, yeah, what a trip. <laughs> what a trip. And when did you meet Robin? How old were you? Yeah, so 94, summer of 94. Commonwealth Games were in Victoria. Blind date. I came over with Ike. And so you, know, so you, took, you took Ike on your first date with Robin. Oh, my goodness. Of course I did. You know, <laughs> well, it's, uh, a, it's a magnet, right? You've got a dog a like that. On, as inappropriate as it may be considered now, he was full on chick magnet and, and I was making no bones about it. And, <laughs> um, you know, because Robin was another chase, right? If she was this beautiful redhead and highly acclaimed runner, and wow, if I could, if I could win her. You know, so for me, it began as a, I got to get this woman as a, as a girlfriend. And so I'm bringing this dog. <laughs> and Robin so, is a, an Olympian as well. Has it represented Canada? She's a multiple, multiple yeah, uh, 17 years on the Canadian national team, middle distance runner. What sort of genetics do your kids have? Yeah, well, you know, that's the bizarre thing, Andrew, is that Matea, although a, a beautiful runner, is a performer. She loves music. She loves singing. And being in place and hey if that's her gig fair enough uh hmm. you know so well it's still performing you bet you bet a quick break in the program to let you know about the performance intelligence masterclass you see every week we receive a number of requests from people listening to the podcast or attending one of my keynote presentations wanting to know more about personal performance coaching due to the demands on my time running strivestronger.com delivering mental skills training for athletes and sporting teams, my speaking practice, and also having four kids, I only allocate a set amount of time each week, about half a day, towards coaching. And this is primarily targeted at senior executives and entrepreneurs and founders. The starting price for my coaching programs is $15,000, which I realize is a lot of money and it's prohibitive for many people. So, based on the success of a 12-month coaching program we've been delivering for a number of corporate clients, we are launching a public version of Performance Intelligence Masterclass. It's open to the public and it's open to people like you. So if you would like to boost your psychological fitness and resilience, enhance physical well-being and energy, if you want to live longer, if you want to increase productivity, if you want to enhance cognitive capacity and decision-making, and if you want to do this with a support group of like-minded people, oh, and if you also want to make more money, Performance Intelligence Masterclass has been designed for you. How does it work? Well, the format is we pick a theme for each quarter like being match fit or boosting productivity or accelerating mental skills, enhancing leadership, etc. There's a half-day group workshop. Then we have six weeks of check-ins where you're made accountable each week just by asking five or six key questions. And then we wrap that up with a 60 to 90 minute workshop, six weeks after the half-day workshop. And then for the rest of the quarter, you put this into practice. To find out more, go to andrewmay.com slash Performance Intelligence Masterclass. I've done a dive into the research, or in fact, correctly, Dr. Tom Buckley has, who heads up our research institute, and it's 
deep. I've got multiple papers here right now, Jason, about pet ownership and quality of life, a systematic review of the literature. I've got Do Dogs Make You Happy? The Power of Support from Companion Animals for People Living with Mental Health Problems. The list goes on and on and on. So let me do a little summary and then you can add anything to this. Around stress and anxiety, interacting with animals has been shown to decrease levels of cortisol, a stress-related hormone, and lower blood pressure. Dogs are very present. If someone is struggling with something, they know how to sit there and be loving, says Dr. Ann Berger, a physician and researcher at the NIH Clinical Centre in Bethesda, Maryland. I totally butchered that pronunciation, I'm sure. Dogs' attention is focused on the person all the time. Around ADHD, a 2015 study found children with ADHD who read to animals had improvements in sharing, cooperation, volunteering, and behavioral problems compared to children who had ADHD that weren't getting the treatment or the the time with animals. Around physical health, the American Heart Association points to studies that found pet owners who walk their dogs get up to 30 minutes more exercise a day than dog walkers. I think 30 minutes is low compared to my experience around dogs. I would agree. And a 2020 CNN health interview with Professor Harold Herzog. You can't make this stuff up. Professor Harold Herzog at Western Carolina University showed that pet owners have fewer heart attacks. They are less lonely. They have better blood pressure. They have better psychological well-being. They have lower rates of depression and stress. They have fewer doctor visits. They have increased self-esteem. They sleep better and they have more physical activity and daily movement. I'll just give you one more as well. Around depression, studies have shown repeatedly that people's positive mood increases and their bad mood decreases around pets. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, none of that surprises me. You didn't need that, though. You you had Ike. Yeah, I had Ike. And, you know, and unbeknownst to me, he was he was medicine, right, in, in a non-traditional way, but he was helping me heal. And I think part of that healing was that, you know, one of the things that, that I think dogs do for us is why we like having dogs in our lives is because they are easy to love. And what I mean by that is we see it, we feel safe to love them. There's no no worry of will the love be returned? Will my heart be broken? Will be will I be compromised or betrayed or what have you. And I think the act of loving feels amazing. I know, you know, Robin and I have talked about this when we lost our our Ike replacement, if you will. Katie was a, a yellow lab cross who lived 16 years. And, and when she died, I remember saying to Robin, I think what I miss about her was, was the feeling of loving. And as much as we like to think that with our partners and with our children and, you know, there are no conditions, but there are conditions. There's always conditions, whether we were conscious or not. There are conditions in our human relationships. And but with pets, there's none. Right. I when I would lay down beside Katie or when I lay down beside Oakley and Bella, the love comes pouring out of me because because I'm never worried for a moment in, oh, is this a good time? Or, <laughs> you know, are they going to reciprocate? Because they will always reciprocate and it's always a good time. And loving feels good. So, yes, they can unconditionally love us, but I think they allow us to unconditionally love them. 
And, you know, one of the things that I find interesting about human and humans in terms of how we describe the love of dogs, we, we put that unconditional word on it. But as I've, as I said at a talk a couple of weeks ago, I think if dogs could come, come to the conversation, they wouldn't, they wouldn't describe it as unconditional love. They would just describe it as love because that's the only love they know. There, there are no conditions in the world of love and canines. Yeah. And for people listening to this who have had a pet that's passed away, oh, my, my heart sinks. I, I think of Cougar, a Rhodesian Ridgeback that my brother and I shared for 11 years, this gorgeous dog. And I, I've had friends even say recently, that was the best dog they've ever known. I had a mate say that we caught up at Bondi a couple of weeks ago. He said, your dog. He said, I just have never met anyone like Cougar. They become part of your life so for much. Sure. Two, two other bits to add. Dr. Tom Buckley had told me this morning, actually, in our staff meeting to set up the week, that at Royal North Shore Hospital, where he works, the intensive care unit has a dog come in once a week, and they've had overwhelming feedback from staff and nurses and doctors that has become the highlight of their week, that they're now going to try and bring the dog in double, if not triple the amount of time. So this is doctors and nurses who've grown up in this scientific world now going, where's the puppy wanting to come in? In preparation for this, Jason, I've asked my partner, Tony, if she was comfortable sharing our story, especially our story around having or wanting to start a family. We had four failed IVF attempts and then Tony was devastated and it just wasn't working. And after the fourth attempt, and any any male and especially any female listening to this, if you have been through IVF, it's so draining and especially for, for women, it the psychology, what it does to your hormone levels, your physiology, even your body shape. There is such an impact on you. And I think a lot of women feel they're alone on this. But the more that Tony and I have spoken to people, we realize so many others have had challenges, you know, starting children, uh, having miscarriages. So after four IVF attempts, four failed attempts, Tony read some research and the research showed that there was a a group of people, high-stressed individuals, and there was a control group. Group number one had a dog. Group number two did stress relaxation training, and group number three did nothing. In this trial, the people that had a dog, their cortisol levels dropped double of what people did who did the stress management program, and those that did nothing, the cortisol levels didn't change at all. That was enough to convince Tony to hop in the car with Archer and Michaela, our two gorgeous oldest children, drive to Goulburn, that's about a three-hour drive, pick up Toby unsighted, apart from on a website with a whole bunch of other cute little dogs, and then they drove home, (laughs) Archer and Michaela sitting next to Toby the whole way, and Tony kept saying to Archie, let him sleep, let him sleep. So Tony got Toby the dog in a time for us that was really sad, and especially for her, it was devastating. She was thinking maybe she wouldn't be able to have a baby. Now, three or four weeks after that, Tony can see for the first time. Now, after that, uh, we had a couple of miscarriages, and that was that was a really tough time, and Tony was like, so strong, so robust through that period. And then after the second miscarriage, that was at about four months, Jason, and yeah, Tony was just a, a shadow of herself, as you can imagine. Then we decided to give it a break for a while and we went to Bali on a holiday. She'd relaxed and then Sophia, or Sophia was conceived. And 
upon reflecting and talking to Tony, she openly believes that Toby totally changed the dynamic around love, the dynamic around fun, and the dynamic around connection in our family. We've got an ongoing family joke now because not long after Sophia arrived, in fact, I think it was about 15 or 16 months, little baby Millie was conceived. And then my mother said, right, we're getting rid of the dog. No more. That's enough. <laughs> but yeah, for right. my own situation, Jason, for our situation, Toby just totally changed the dynamic of our family. That's a beautiful story. That's a beautiful story. Yeah. I, I, and, and, you know, science aside, it doesn't surprise me. You know, I just think the impact of those, of that energy is, is nothing but positive. And uh, yeah, that's a cool story. What would you like to close out specific to the story about Ark? Yeah, I think, well, and you saw the little post the other day on LinkedIn about the leadership part of it, you know, and, and that didn't really land for me until after, you know, a couple of months after the book came out was this notion that someone had said, hey, have you ever thought about writing a leadership book? And, and I sort of thought, well, wait a second, I think I just did. And I only reason I got there was because of the feedback from other people saying, this is what I, this is what it taught me. This is, these are the lessons I took from it. And, you know, similar to you, Andrew, our work is very much about the being of performance, right? And in terms of leadership, I just think there are, if we could, if we could learn from from our dogs, I mean, there's a lot about what dogs represent in terms of their presence, in terms of how they live life, that we as people can can take big profound lessons from. And so you you move that into the role of leadership. If leadership is about relationships and about being and about presence and about love and compassion, then you know, I think the book, all of that is on display in the book in in terms of in terms of how we need to be as leaders right the entrepreneur inside so, me saying jason just write one on leadership <laughs> given, <laughs> given the same stuff champ like john gordon yeah. do you know john i don't so he's written no. multiple books the energy bus uh, the leader within he tells beautiful parables and stories right um, right just write another one mate just tell them it's yeah, about leadership okay. <laughs> just change it right okay <laughs> So Jason Dolan, this is the time in our discussion that we call Performance Uncovered. So we find out more about you, your quirks, what you do, how you do it. So question number one, what is your favorite movie? Uh, I'm going to say uh, The Biggest Little Farm. It's a documentary. came out just before COVID, I think. And, uh, you know, cried. True story. Young couple starts an organic regenerative farm. And the husband is a is a filmmaker and so he documents the seven years of of turning this old farm in northern california into their dream and it's a it's it was on netflix i don't know if it still is but won a ton of awards it's a beautiful beautiful story question two what song do you know all of the lyrics to yeah i think pretty much any rush song i'm i don't know if australians are familiar with rush but it's a big Canadian band. Uh, they were together 40 years. And uh, when I was a kid, very, yeah, I just listened to them all the time. Oh, so give any give, give us your favorite verse. Oh, I don't know if I can give you a verse. The song needs to be playing because uh, I need to be lost in, in, in that music. But 
you know, Neil Peart, who was the drummer, he was the lyricist as well. And and an author wrote a number of books, but his lyrics were super powerful in in terms of uh, yeah, in ter just terms of what speaks to you during your teenage years and early twenties. And Neil was sort of my go-to guy. Wizard will put some Rush music in the background okay. as we're talking about this. Beautiful. Question three: What food can you not get enough of? Uh, well, Sunday morning pancakes. If I'm making the pancakes, uh, I got to say, I, you know, I love my own pancakes and I could eat those every day. Are they a cheat meal? Like I saw, Wizard, I saw a reason The Rock had his cheat meal. How, did you see that? It was pancakes, but they were low carb pancakes and he had protein powder in them and everything. I thought that's not yeah. a cheat meal, Rock, but I suppose no. that's how you get to look like The Rock. I I make, you know, we I buy the grains whole and I grind them and so they're pretty healthy pancakes, but uh, you know, for me, I see them as a vehicle for for the nut butter and yogurt and fruit I put on top. And so, anyway, I, I love pancakes. Question number four: What book has had the biggest impact on your life? Yeah, I think I'm going to say um, "Unbroken," the one about the American who was in a POW camp in Japan and then went on to run at the Olympics and win a gold medal and uh, and then you know after the olympics alcoholic struggled back from that it's just a remarkable story of of uh a perseverance of, of of the power of the human spirit i think that's why that book moved me so much question five what is your most meaningful possession i mean oh i'm wearing them i would say my wedding ring and uh, my family ring that my dad gave to me decades ago, I haven't taken it off. So I would say my two rings. Geez, you've got to be in the good books. You've got to get your wife to listen yeah. to this. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> uh, question number six, what does your weekly fitness routine look like now? Um, well, weights three, three days a week, running three, four days a week, hike on the days I don't run with the dogs. Uh, we swim in the lake. We live right beside, you know, the – cleanest freshwater lake on southern Vancouver Island and so fitness is a big part of our day we take care of ourselves and you know we health and wellness is a big big ticket item in this house so yeah question seven what is your favorite failure so yeah no doubt we've covered that yeah, yep. in detail question eight what do you do to recharge uh gardening so after watching the little biggest little farm, you know everything was shut down. So I we have a third of an acre. I turned our backyard into the biggest little farm, and we grow every fruit tree and bush and vegetable. And it's uh, I get lost in the backyard. I find it one of the things that I that I appreciate about it. Two things: there's no such thing as fast gardening, right? It slows you down. And the other thing is I love the lessons of that Mother Nature shares, right? If um, And the notion of patience, of just, if it, if it didn't grow this year, then you got to try again next year. And uh, yeah, there's, I just love the influence of being in that garden. Question nine, how do you prepare for key performance moments? So a... A podcast interview or a presentation for a big stage when you've got to you know, turn up and, and be on. Right. What, what do you do to get ready for that? Uh, exercise. 
big part of it morning of and uh if it's later I have a nap um just a little 15 minute close my eyes and and cold showers and just you know I journal every morning so just clearing my head uh meditation and just making sure you know I get pretty excited about that stuff so I really enjoy it I'm not a rah-rah kind of presenter but I feel honored that people have come to listen and so you know I want to make sure I'm at my best question 10 what keeps you up at night Oof. <laughs> wow how long is this <laughs> we got as long as you um, want yeah I think oh goodness I think on the backside of COVID you know without getting too political Andrew I I I don't know you know I think I always had a sense that if we knew what was going on in the world our heads would pop off and I think we got a little peek of into into that world and so I think the corruption of world of world politics is what keeps me up at night I know that's a big that's a big freaking answer that's but a big one yeah yeah that, I think that really has captured my attention it's going off script how do you wrestle with that what what impact can you have what impact do you not have and where do you put your energy and that's a that's a great follow-up question because that's Robin and I talk about it all the time right the rage that can come up at times and you just sort of go well you know how on earth am I going to change that narrative and so you know the message starts at home and um trying to to be the best self be best version of ourselves in the work we do uh promoting the notion of love and treating it each other yeah i mean <laughs> yeah I, I think it just if anything it reminds me when i look of what's happened in the last three years it reminds me of the power of the work that we do and you do and and all of the people who are trying to inspire change in the world i can so, see it's a big topic for you and what's come through I've really enjoyed this today. It's the love, it's the compassion, it's the reflection. You think a lot, you're deep. You've you've had some big life experiences. You probably glossed over your emotions at a young age like many of us do. You don't gloss now. You sink into those emotions. You reflect, you feel. You have a a massive leaning in towards social justice and fairness and equality. I can imagine that just keeps you literally your head turning over some nights. Yeah. Well, that's impressive as hell. Uh, you know, we haven't, this is our conversation, right? This is our introduction. And, and if I were to, if, if one of your questions was, um, what is, what bothers you more than anything else? I would say injustice. It is my, uh, powder keg, right? It, I can get very upset at injustice when I see the you know the little guy sort of thing or what have you it really sets me off and 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 you know what for as long as I can remember um and I don't know if that comes from my dad I'm not sure but um yeah injustice is a is a is a biggie I didn't read that anywhere about you I, I felt that yeah from the from the moment we connected I, I oh, okay. felt that wow. yeah neat question at number 11 
this is a <laughs> let's get a lot lighter now because we got really deep there, sure. mate. Uh, yeah. Question eleven: What is your number one productivity tip? You know, good one. I would say acknowledge what it is you're after, the goal. You know, and, and then and then set it aside and identify the process and and uh, and stay focused on what you can control and and really trying to get into that flow state as often as possible and, and really let yeah and just let that flow state take over right and don't get distracted don't get misled by uh the chase you've mentioned flow state a few times today i'm sure everybody listening has heard of flow originally mikhail Csikszentmihalyi, right. the hungarian psychologist coined the term it's where you lose track of time and you are just in the moment sure Dogs live in flow, coincidentally. Like you, if you spoke to a dog, they would say, yes. what are you on about? They're just always in flow. Right. You would have learnt about that in rowing or you would have known that in, in your rowing. Do you spend time thinking about how do I shift into flow state or does it just happen naturally? I'm really curious on this with high performance. Is it just something that happens or do you have to shift into it? Well, um, I'm aware of it and so – um, it's interesting. I have a bit of a hack for myself. When I do videos that I post each week, I'll do them mid-run. So I'm 40, 45 minutes into a run, and then I'll pull out my phone and I'll do the video because, because I know that as a result of that 45 minutes of exercise, I'll, I'll be in a pretty darn good place. Yeah. So that's my that's my go to in terms of when I have to kept capture myself in a you know in a sort of handheld video moment. But you know, it, even though as an athlete I didn't know what it was, I certainly didn't know the term. When I think back to races that I had, uh, more as a younger athlete, I remember moments of flow state where you couldn't pull hard enough. It was like I can't make myself tired. This feels so effortless and i mean there were a handful of those races but i certainly remember them mm. and i totally get what you're talking about when you're in the middle of a run and your brain you just have that creative spark yeah. totally yeah. get it question yeah. 12 who has been your most influential mentor yeah i'm gonna say my dad for sure but i'm also gonna say you know and i'm not looking for uh for you know, for good marks around the house here, but I'm going to say my wife, Robin, you know, she saved my life. You really do need to get Robin to listen to this. And even if it's just the last little bit, have you told her that? She knows that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Quite an influence and, and a gift, you know, I just think of, I think, well, if people read the book, they'll, they'll see, you know, what a jackass I was as a younger man in pursuit of Robin and how she endured that is a miracle. And then, and then in the end to, for her to be my life partner and yeah, just what I've learned from her is pretty much everything that works for me now, you know? Uh, yeah. How could she not be? Yeah. Final question. What is your definition yeah. of high performance? Uh, my definition of high performance. I think I think 
you know, my the notion of high performance is all is often attributed to uh, or associated with sport, but I think high performance can have many platforms, right? I think you and I would definitely agree on this one, but I think high performance can, uh, it doesn't have to happen on a world stage, right? In fact, it can happen when no one's watching. And I would think for a lot of us, it does. So it really is achieving a moment in time or moments in time where we are at our best self. I see that as high performance. We are performing we are executing whatever we're doing at our highest level in the moment. That's high performance. It doesn't have to be an Olympic final, right? Thank you, Jason Dolan, for achieving high performance today. You, you've really turned up to this. We talk about performance intelligence, the ability to adapt your physical, your psychological, your emotional, would even add now your social state. You've taken me on a roller coaster today. Uh, Wizard and I do a reflection. I'm really looking forward, Wiz, to hearing your reflection on this. I didn't know what to expect. I, like I, I, I'd read your story. I've, I've read the book. But you've taken me on, on a journey today, and I can see how you now do that in your coaching. I can just see how you'll do that in your workshops and your keynotes. So it's so authentic. So for, for me, heartfelt thank you for bringing high performance to this discussion today. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, Andrew. Yeah, when I got the invite, I was just, I was thrilled, right? And uh, so, and especially because I spelt, spent time in Australia, you know, I had so many friends down there in Melbourne and and had such a wonderful time. Uh, when we used to travel into international regattas, the Canadians and the Australians, you know, always got on so easily. So I feel like if you lived here or if I lived there, we'd be friends. And uh and that's a cool thing. We'd go for a yeah, hike with our dogs. Yes, <laughs> indeed. When I what I, I was saying to Robin, what I appreciate about is your little those uh, those little bites, right? And and I love the fact I love how you ask people to support you. It it's bold without being obnoxious, and it's to me it's one of those things you don't ask, you don't get. And and I just I don't know. It just brings okay for me. Mm. You know, there are some podcasts I listen to where where there is some promotion in it, and I and I just go, uh, fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. And yours yours seem to not bother me. So can, can you've, I, you've struck a nice chord well, with those. Thank you. It's lovely getting that feedback from you. Can I tell you where I really doubled down on that idea from? You hear a lot of podcasters, especially Canadian, your home country, the Americans, and there's a lot of advertising at the end. And I start to think, God, just get on with it. But also, if you yeah. don't ask, you don't receive. My right. daughter, she turns 15 tomorrow, and she works at Betty's Burgers, which is a, a health food hamburger yeah. chain here. And I went and picked yeah. her up, and we had dinner with her with my son about a month ago. And we're sitting there, Jason. She said, oh, Dad, Archie, do you mind just getting the QR code and scanning it and, and give me, giving me a rating and a comment on Google? I went, yeah, yeah, sure, Moomoo. And I'm sitting there and she showed us how to do it and gave her the comment. It was instantaneous. Uh, and I said, do you want me to do it later? She said, no, no, I'd like it if you could do it now. That's okay. And I said, they train you to do this, right? She said, yeah. And, and if I do it enough, I'll get employee of the month. And then I get a $100 shopping voucher. So she got employee of the month that mm. month. She's just gone and bought a beautiful cool. dress for a hundred bucks. Yeah. This Betty's Burgers chain alone has got two and a half thousand Google reviews because they get 15 and 16 year old kids to ask people like you and I having our healthy hamburger. 
to give them a review on the spot. And I just went, oh, my God, I've got to ask people yeah. like yeah. my daughter's doing just to yeah. actually give me a bit of a rating and review. Otherwise, yeah, yeah. no one does it. Yeah, no, I think uh- – yeah, it just works. Like I said, it doesn't doesn't ring cheesy or overblown or oh my goodness, here we go again. I just listened and I thought, wow, there's something to that. So, did you give me a, you. did you give me a rating and review? Did it? I haven't yet. <laughs> I haven't yet because I just I let them roll and I listened to so many. Yeah. Um. So I will. My my daughter would say, Jason, can you please get your phone and do it now? <laughs> yeah. Now it's a truly global world now. Pre-COVID, especially 15 years ago, your work would have been mainly in Canada, a little bit in the States. Now we've got a digital global audience that can buy your books and products and book you online. For those people who are listening to this and going, hey, I want more of that guy, how do they best connect with you? Yourmindset.ca is our our website. So yourmindset, just like it sounds, .ca as for Canada. And... uh, would be the best way uh email and everything's on there lots of social media instagram linkedin uh twitter even and uh facebook so all the usual spots and then in terms of the book ike um lovereadingike.com is where to go for that lovereadingike.com and people can either order it from me or and and no offense taken if they have if you know the listeners have Amazon and, and the shipping's free, then go for it, you know, no problem. But um, yeah, I just want to get the story out. So however they come to it. Well, a big thank you for helping get the story out today. I've loved our time. Cheers. Thank you. Same. Agreed. Wizard, we are back in the studio. Another reflection on one of our podcasts. Before we reflect on Jason Dorland, I've been asked this a few times. Do we do the reflection straight after we record the podcast or do we give it a bit of time? So the answer is we always give it a bit of time. I like to listen to the podcast in entirety, especially after you've edited or you just give me a highlights package. I also needed time, especially after with Jason. I was, I just felt physically, psychologically, emotionally, every alley. I just felt, wow, totally absorbed in the conversation. In fact, you from memory said, do you want to record that now? Just when we looked at our publishing schedule, do you remember what I said to you? Yeah, yeah. I thought it was pretty funny. You said I need to go to the gym and downregulate. <laughs> okay, that's a new one. <laughs> you thought I was an idiot. Yeah, I just, I wanted to process it. Mm. It was special. That That is, oh, yeah. that's one of the four or five, or that's in my top four or five favorite podcasts, not just from performance intelligence. We've done a lot of corporate podcasts. We've done a podcast for NAB. We've done one for Westpac. We're also doing one for Navy. Uh, the NAB podcast, we did over 30 episodes called mm. Business Fit. We've done 100 episodes now on performance intelligence. That's up there, mate, in my top four or five. Yeah, I think for me too as well. That was um, I, I knew very little, practically nothing about Jason going in. And then at the end of it, I was like, wow, that was, that was incredible. I saw a few times you looked at me and just stared at me. So what did you take out of it? Mm, first thing I was thinking about was this guy needs to be in a pet barn ad because I've, <laughs> I've already got, I've got a cat and a turtle and I immediately wanted to run out and buy a dog because <laughs> it just sounded so amazing. Yeah, so that, that was my first thought, honestly. But after that, I, I was thinking about it as well afterwards and even after talking about these things so often and so much, I mean, this happened you know, over 30 years ago, uh, you know, 
going to the Olympics, sort of bombing out and then getting Ike. You can tell he's still sort of there when he talks about it. He, he has those emotions still. They're still quite strong, even after, you know, being on stage all around the world and, and talking about it to thousands of people. Just in this podcast to you, he was, you it know, was so very authentic. emotional. Yeah. I felt myself whiz going on an emotional roller coaster mm. with him. I totally wasn't expecting that. I thought we'll talk about his Olympic journey. I was really wanting to get into that transition. Huge learnings from that great self-awareness. And so open and honest about where he was as a person and where mm, he is yeah. now. And, and 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 a lot of that didn't surprise me. It, it was lovely and open. But then when he started talking about Ike, his emotions yeah. and feelings, and he paused. And, and at one stage, you and I both had tears in our eyes. He, he moved us. I can only imagine what it's like to be in one of his presentations. Oh, it'd, it'd be incredible. I kind of want to go over to Canada now and just sneak into the back of an auditorium somewhere. I was also, you know, thinking he, he's very calm when he talks, he's very measured, he, you know, and then he was talking about him back in the 80s, he was very driven and he just wanted to win and I just, I couldn't picture that in my mind, he just seemed so chill and yeah, there's just this guy who's really just aggressive and he wanted to win all the time and cut to now and he's just very calm, very chill, you know. Wouldn't it be an interesting sociological experiment and, and Jason, when you're listening to this buddy, do you have any video or audio footage mm. of you back then, before you went to Seoul, talking about performance, talking about yourself? Mm. I'd love to see that comparison to now. Wizard, I thought of a cacophony of C words. Jason was calm. He was compassionate. He was collegiate. He was conscientious. He was really considered. Wiz, I also had a few other words that didn't start with C, so it wasn't just a cacophony. He was so loving. His message was loving. Even the way he spoke to us, mm. there was love in the conversation. Didn't think I'd say that growing up in Dubbo, that you know, you got three blokes sharing love in the conversation, but it was actually, it was a beautiful feeling. He was generous and he was kind. If I can summarize in one statement, and I, and I did this when I was in the gym reflecting with, that conversation with Jason, it makes me want to be a calmer, more loving, and a better version of myself. Yeah, well, that's that's pretty deep. I mean, he's definitely, had, I can tell he's had an impact on you then. That's, um, I think that's the first time we've really had a conversation about love on the podcast, you know? We've had people sort of mention it before, you know, I love my wife and kids, but we haven't really gone that deep on it yet. So that's a first for us too. Well, all I can think of saying is, I love you, wizard. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't get paid enough money to say that back. <laughs> Look what you've done to us, Jason. Uh, awesome. Love the interview. Really enjoying the reflections too. Thanks, Wiz. No worries. Enjoyed it. Love you.